Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of NASPGEN, North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. My name is Jen Lee. And I'm Peter Liu, and we are both pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we are super excited to talk to Dr. Katya Kovacic. Dr. Kovacic is a neurogastroenterologist at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and she specializes in the care of children with complex functional GI disorders such as chronic nausea, gastroparesis, and cyclic vomiting syndrome. She's NIH-funded, she was a former professional tennis player, and she took time out of her busy day to come talk to us. So today we're going to talk about nausea. So something that we see commonly, especially in our teenage patients, it can be very challenging to evaluate, to talk about with the family, to treat effectively. And so um, we had the opportunity to sit down with her and talk about that. And I really like that we also talk some about quality of life and work-life yeah. balance, yep. raising young children and being very successful in your academic career. All right, let's go check it out. On to the show. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bowel Sounds. Today we have Dr. Katya Kovacic. And we are super excited to talk about a topic that I think is a big clinical challenge for many of us, and that's the child or adolescent with chronic nausea. As you guys know, like that's something that can be very debilitating and have a huge impact on someone's quality of life. And I feel like some of the evaluation and management is not entirely clear for every child. I didn't appreciate how much nausea will really affect your day-to-day life until I was pregnant with my first child. And it actually opened up my eyes nice to what, and it was a different perspective on what my patients were going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few have that perspective. And um, if you think about, thank you, by the way, for, for inviting me to take part no in worries. this. Thank you for being here. If you think about patients with cyclic vomiting syndrome, for example, sometimes I say to other doctors and, and myself, think about when you have a virus and you're throwing up with your head in the toilet and how you feel a little bit better after you throw up. Well, patients with cyclic vomiting syndrome, they continue to have this relentless nausea even after throwing up and you can't even imagine how that feels for days on end. And so these patients, many are suffering from this chronic daily constant nausea, uh, which they describe. We don't know how it feels. Uh, Maybe you can tell us. Uh, But they're often told that things are probably in your head. Many people try to do that in a careful way, and but there's often the psychological comorbidities that we don't know how to tease out as doctors. Parents often wonder, is my child a psych mess? Do right. I not know something? Is there Are they right? Am I right? Who's right? And how much anxiety evolves with this condition getting worse? So those are some of the things we should discuss, I yeah. think. I think unlike, you know, having bloody diarrhea, you can't see it happening. And so I think it's hard for families and for physicians to, to like understand, yeah, to understand what's going on and how horrible it is. Yeah. And that brings up a point where and some patients on a spectrum of all these conditions, such as gastroparesis, or severe nausea, vomiting, and sometimes it leads to an NJ tube. And sometimes there's a relief in the patients having that NJ because it's visible. Yeah. Uh, and we have to really think about strongly, are we, are we doing that to to prove a point or, you know, and, and where does that become too much medicalized versus we want to avoid invest- invasive uh, procedures. And so I think all of these factors really need to be thought about before we make decisions, but they are suffering in most of these patients. So so when a patient comes to you with this history of chronic nausea, what are some of the questions that you ask them to start understanding what they're going through? Most of my research right now is a grant that's focused on phenotyping and characterizing patients with chronic nausea. And I don't have to data to share just yet, but they clearly see a pattern of a lot of patients with an autonomic dysfunction. And that could be a spectrum of severity. There could be patients 
bit more of a migraine pathology and a variety of GI functional motility disorders that will overlap into this. So we have a lot of unanswered questions. What's the real underlying thing and how do they overlap? Because just to say that somebody has autonomic dysfunction doesn't mean that they don't have gastroparesis. In fact, uh, what I see emerging is that that's an overlapping issue. Gastric motor dysfunction, uh, gastric sensory motor dysfunction with an abnormal perception of what's happening in the GI tract and uh, an enhanced perception of, of those discomfort and, and nausea, nausea sensations, and as, as well as sometimes multi-system manifestations of the autonomic dysfunctions. And then it's clear as a clinician, okay, uh, we have dizziness, we have chronic fatigue, brain fog. Sometimes it's simple to figure that out, but I do think that still a lot of our, uh, as GI doctors, we don't ask those questions. We don't have time. So what I do ask is, is there a trigger? I think the classic pattern we're seeing is an infectious trigger or a traumatic, you know, it can also be an appendectomy. Anything that upsets your body, homeostasis seems to be a trigger in often post-pubertal females. What's the hormonal predisposition? We don't know, but there appears to be something with puberty and especially females. Males can also get it. But I do ask about triggers to sort of try to tease out is this does this fit this pattern? And a lot of people will remember that day when they got a GI bug, the whole family got the GI bug or the strep throat. Since then, my life has changed. And I think that helps you say, well, this is something new. This is very consistent with an autonomic dysfunction if they have multi-system features versus perhaps uh, a patient who's been on ADHD meds and psychological or has gone through abuse or something from very young, has a very strong psychological comorbidity. They're also predisposed to things like this, but then you have maybe a little different routes of a, of a patient. So families can usually say to you, my child was normal. My child was adjusting well to life. There was no anxiety even. And then this happened. Mm-hmm. So those patients probably deserves attention in a different way and less psycho- focus on the psychological piece. Yeah. So I'm hearing is like, so there are di- even within the child with chronic nausea, there's different phenotypes. Mm-hmm. So some are maybe more nausea that's related to psychological comorbidities. Mm-hmm. And some maybe are more multi-system and nausea is one component of their, of what's going on. Correct. So obviously nausea can be caused by so many different disorders. Mm-hmm. If someone comes to you with that story that six months ago, I had this crazy infection and really since then I can't go to school in the morning because I'm so nauseous. Are there tests that you would think about ordering or things you want to rule out? If they're vomiting, you I absolutely do an upper GI. I mean, you just buy yourself one. I don't mm-hmm. think that you have to do an endoscopy. You have to use your clinical judgment and uh, saying, yeah, there's very intense abdominal pain with eating and could there be an, an ulcer? We've seen patients with a lot of these functional conditions that have EOE, for example. Right. I think that's actually a big one. You're going to do a gastric emptying scan. Those would be the main things, right, from the GI perspective. But if you are going to do that, you ought to have that discussion. I, I think this is a functional disorder within the spectrum and possibly an autonomic dysfunction. And again, they very much overlap. I think that this workup is going to be negative. I don't want to cause a bunch of stress, but this is why we're doing it. We're just taking things off. And most of the time they agree with you. They want to rule things out. So, or sometimes I say to families, what do you feel like doing? You know, and Because you have a high suspicion that you're going to have negative workups. So I do think that they deserve to know that and choose to even right. say, I don't want the anesthesia and, and we can just wait with that. And I think that's fine. There's no guidelines to say somebody with nausea should have an endoscopy, right? And then the test of autonomic dysfunction, it's a big comprehensive test that's not available at most institutions. Sometimes there is cardiologists in in most communities that can perform a tilt table test, a motorized tilt table that 
evaluates all your vital signs and, and how the patient reacts to an upright tilt. Is there symptoms? Is there changes in blood pressure and heart rate? And it uh, helps you identify and, and sort of phenotype and possible autonomic disorders such as postural tachycardia syndrome. I don't think it's necessary if you ask a lot of clinical questions. It's rare that we are missing it based on clinical features. Uh, a lot of people don't have it, again. And, and sometimes these are not clearly validated tests performed in huge numbers of healthy children. So sometimes you can get a borderline normal test and that complicates the picture right, even right. more and you're suspicious that this is really an autonomic disorder. So mm -hmm. I think you're fine without that test. If you have the opportunity to do it somewhere, it can help you and you have to think about this based on the family and the situation. It helps them validate that and helps the family know that there's really something going on here. So One thing that really resonates with me is setting that expectation with the family from the beginning because mm -hmm. I think it's very different. If you go into a test expecting that something is wrong, mm -hmm. and then when you find nothing, then right. the outcome is, oh, it nobody knows what's going to search on. for diagnosis. Yeah. So we all see those patients that they are continuing to search, and they don't want to go to a pain rehab program as we are all are starting to recommend and seeing a pattern of like mm -hmm. dysfunctional medicalization, polypharmacy. So yeah, setting it, it's, it's crucial to set this up front. And unfortunately, in tertiary care centers, we see them late. So we have a bigger challenge, but I feel that it really can be done. You probably need an hour for these appointments to sort out if somebody has an, an autonomic dysfunction. Chronic nausea, I mean, shown in studies on autonomic disorders is, is highly prevalent. Mm -hmm. uh, in our studies, we've shown about 90% nausea and vomiting symptoms in general or at least 60%. And most of these studies are retrospective, but mm -hmm. it's it's shown over and over again. And that's like nausea and vomiting prevalence in those patients who have autonomic Correct. dysfunction. Correct, right. Okay. So, but they, have, yeah. they really have everything. Uh, you need to ask about headaches. You need to ask about dizziness. You need to ask about maybe shortness of breath, yeah. right? So they have yeah. sleep disturbances to a great extent. Uh, the brain fog is, is very classic, so they, they really can't think and sit upright. So this brings an important topic there's a lot you can do. Reassurance, education, lifestyle intervention. So so, so first of all, there's a book called The Dysautonomia Project that I think all okay. of our doctors, we should all read it mm -hmm. as, as GI doctor and as patients. So it's neat because it's written for both patients and doctors. So one page has patients and from, you know, tips and stuff. And then the other page talks about the similar, similar things for the doctor. It's great. Most fa families are kind of enlightened by, by reading it. And I was too. So there's a lot you can really do. So getting up very slowly in the morning, understanding that this is a disabling condition, especially in the mornings. Um, they've been laying down all night and now they have to get up, have to get yeah. quickly up in the shower. It's stressful for kids nowadays to, you know, you have to get up at seven so in the morning. Mm -hmm. So really um, perhaps a letter to the school um, that they can start at nine. I make mm -hmm. a huge difference. Yeah. I know Dr. Lee used to always do that for sickly vomiting syndrome patients. And um, you have to be careful, right? So there's no school avoidance and, right. and avoiding um, avoiding going. But that um, may be tanking up with water before you even get out of bed and go uh, taking Zofran can help some in the morning. Providing extra salt, exercise on a gradual basis uh, becomes very important. But that morning hour and maybe not taking a hot shower in the morning that dilate your vessels and get you more nauseous. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what you're experienced for. Uh, nausea and vomiting or pregnancy, <laughs> if that's somewhat similar, but the mornings are tough, Actually, most likely. Yeah. That was um, extremely similar. I mean, I used to do the same thing. I would lay in bed for a, 
I mean, I was a, a fellow at the time, so I had to be in at six six thirty. So I would wake up an hour early just so I could lay in deal bed, with your nausea. deal with the nausea, slowly get up, not shower before work. These are all things that I did. Although I haven't read that book, I think I'm going to. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about like medications and how that might contribute to this. So you mm-hmm. mentioned polypharmacy. Can you explain kind of what that means? And how you tease out which medications may be helping and which may not. Right. So I think that's all those patients that we see that have some psychological comorbidities that get put on antidepressants, prokinetics, erythromycin, topamax, migraine drugs, um, and amitriptyline sometimes with the antidepressant and sort of what's, what's the point. But you can and, and should use some drugs if if. You know, obviously, they deserve, it may work, right? So some patients do feel better, may have a little less anxiety with an SSRI and, and feel less nausea maybe with amitriptyline. But we perhaps forget that amitriptyline, for example, has anticholinergic effect and can slow your stomach emptying. We often titrate it very high and you might actually really see worsening. And, and how do we know? Uh, right. Patients are already quite disabled. How do we know that now the drug is causing it? So mm-hmm. One neat thing about some of the tests, like the autonomic tests, you have to really wean them off the drugs. And you, I often say, when you do this, get back to me about how you felt. So actually, quite a few say, oh, yikes, I feel the same or well, I felt better. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's an avenue to start from scratch. But the, the drugs have to be really one by one. So I don't know the timeline, how you should, you know, how you should go about it. Depends on the drug, right? Amitriptyline takes up to eight to 12 weeks to uh, reach the peak and, and levels in your system. Typically see a response much sooner. Most drugs perhaps deserve a three-month trial. Same thing with simple things like uh, mitochondrial supplements that we use for cyclic vomiting syndrome patients. There is data on some of those like riboflavin for migraine prevention in adults. Mm. Uh, you need to use it for two months. It's not effective. So, so yeah. it's, a, it's a good example of like probably two, three months of every, one thing at a time and that you have to right. talk to the family about. So doing adding, you know, they call, they use my chart and, and we want to react. So stop reacting. And sometimes I say to the families, the my charting is making your child worse. We want to react. We want to help you. We prescribe more meds. Uh, and sometimes say, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to try to wait till next, next make an appointment. And, mm-hmm. and then we look at everything on the paper and we do one thing at a time. Well, you know, you get used to, like, when, when do when do young children typically need medications? Oh, you have an ear infection. Okay, well, I give you antibiotics. You start feeling yep. better immediately. Yeah. But these medications really work very differently. Yeah. Pharmacotherapy, and it's just, it's the norm, and it's yeah. the norm from very early on. And I think we have to break it because we yeah. have data that the CBT, the auricular nerve stimulation, alternative therapies work Equal well, actually, probably better. Yeah. We don't have any data to support pharmacologic therapy in, in children with functional disorders. See, a lot of times it's harder for the physician to not prescribe things. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really taking the time to really commit to let's do things if we're going to use medications, using it in like a responsible way. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, when we now start using some alternative therapies like the air stimulator mm-hmm. we're working on, families love it. They are 100% on board with this alternative medicine. I wouldn't say hype, but I think it's evolving in this country. Yeah. Like alternative things, more healthy lifestyles. I think it's coming. I, I think we're behind other countries, but it's it's coming here and people are really wanting it from the get-go. So you just have to start that up front. A lot of physicians tell me I'm referring you, you know, for the your neurostimulator, but first I got to do the protocol, right? With yeah. the meds. I'm like, what protocol? Mm-hmm. Amitriptyline? Why? Why? Prokinetics? Why? Where's, right. where's that? They don't come to you until they fail everything. So 
Why not start from the beginning? Why not start in the primary care doctor's office? Those patients are probably going to do much, much better if you start those therapies early on. Or, you know, sometimes lifestyle, exercise, mm -hmm. changing our diet. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think for a lot of these conditions, the research is still, you know, needs to be stronger for a lot of things we recommend. But right, like you're saying, for many of it, behavioral treatment it has the strongest evidence, you know, mm -hmm. just because of the way that we think about treating patients and trying to fix things as soon as we can will oftentimes go for what's a little bit easier or what they expect when in reality, that's got the least evidence for it. Yeah, for sure. Another so. thing you can tell your patients, uh, and I do frequently, is that we have these drugs, okay, mm -hmm. but we have things like exercise, sleep, Salt, fluid, if there's an autonomic dysfunction, there's actually quite a few things. And I tell them, do you know how many patients I see that don't believe that this is going to work? And do you know how many of those go on pharmacotherapy and they come back to a few years later, they tried everything and they're worse? The patients who actually have like the soldier dad who like whips them into doing this yeah. and you are going to exercise, you're going to drink this, they get better. Do you, yeah. you know? Not everybody, because sometimes just the disease is too, there's no specific treatment for these disorders, but but quite a few actually can elevate to different level of functioning. And it makes complete sense. You have other disorders like migraines, right? They get worse with sleep deprivation and, and poor diet and stress. These disorders do the same and they get better when you intervene. So talking a lot, but in my oh, CVS population, sometimes a visit is therapeutic. So yeah. I've had very com complex patients from colleagues referred, admitted every um, every month, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And just bringing them in saying, well, we have a plan. We put we have a, a section on lifestyle interventions. We have a section on rescue therapies. We have a section on prophylactic therapy, and we have a section on emergency room protocols. We have all these avenues of treatment, and we then we take it a little step further with medications if we need to. And they just and then we talk about sleep, and then how the parents kind of start running and freaking out and panicking with the puke bucket, and the whole household falls apart when there's a new episode coming on the child, and just teaching them how to deal with that in a better way. We've made huge huge changes in in many kids lives by just an educational session and then knowing that they have a care team so you know the, your visits can be therapeutic right but you need time yeah. <laughs> dr you lee used time. to spend two hours yeah. with new patients in the cvs program wow. and there's a reason for it but with the rvus that we need to make yeah. Yeah. you can't spend two hours i spend one hour and i that's not enough so. a lot of our patients have family history of migraine so often i think that that's a nice baseline understanding Right? Like a lot of these treatments yeah. you're talking yeah. about are very similar to migraines. And mm -hmm. if families can understand that, it kind of helps people get on board. Right. Right. I often use that as an example. You know, we can do all Same. the testing we want, do an MRI of your brain. If you have migraines, the pain is very real, but you can't see it. Same. Mm -hmm. I think that helps people understand. You know, going back a little bit. So we focused a lot on children with chronic nausea who also have maybe some features of autonomic dysfunction or POTS. Uh, for the child with chronic nausea who doesn't have that, it's really just nausea, maybe with some vomiting, maybe fits under like functional nausea and vomiting or functional dyspepsia. How do you usually approach their treatment? So I think teasing out comorbidities is often the key, mm -hmm. features of the nausea. If it's constant daily, all the time, no features whatsoever, that's pretty rare that mm -hmm. they don't have a sleep disturbance, brain fog, chronic fatigue. Right. It's pretty rare that they don't have other signs of autonomic dysfunction mm -hmm. or psych issues. So I think we're just not always asking those questions. Even when they come with 
that one primary complaint, there's a lot of nuance yeah. in trying to find out what are the other features that can clue you in on what might be more effective uh-huh. for that patient. Yeah, and in functional dyspepsia, I, f- I feel like it's really emerging that we don't know what this is, right? right? I think right. probably a spectrum of and gastric motor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Emptying is really just one function of a complex mm-hmm. mechanism of the stomach. Mm-hmm. It oversimplifies mm-hmm. what the stomach mm-hmm. does. Yeah, and that's probably curbing a little bit our care one time i told the family this she asked it was a very very smart mom who said what's the deal here i've had she has ehlers downloads i've had gi issues decades uh and we talked a little bit about the daughters now same symptoms and 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 gastroparesis we had a lot of questions about why why is the stomach not empty and i i told her this how the stomach works and she just looked at me and she said in 60 seconds, you told me something about the stomach, and I completely understand the complexity and why I have not responded to anything. How could I go for 30 years without anybody telling me anything about this? So for our listeners, can you repeat that 60-second speech that you gave her? <laughs> but also, you I know, can. For, and that, but then also for our gastroenterologists or even primary care docs who don't get one hour or two hours to spend with their patients, can you give a, a brief summary of what you can say and do in a short visit to maybe start getting to the right diagnosis? I think what I said, <laughs> so this patient had a normal syntigraphy. She may have gastroparesis. I don't know because the syntigraphy is a poor test, uh, but she may have other problems with the stomach function because she has intense nausea and pain with eating. So there's a way that the stomach receives food and needs to uh, accommodate the food. There is coordination that needs to happen between the f- for two different parts of the stomach. There's a muscle that needs to open on the stomach to empty the stomach that needs to function. And there is a rhythmic contraction of the stomach that needs to happen at a certain pace for everything to work. And all these things need to work together. That's what I said. It helps them to understand why we don't have a fix. And then, so your second question is how do we quickly do a visit? Um, I don't know how to do it very quickly. I take too long. I I need training myself how to do this. But I think having some kind of pre-visit information of the patient that you can run through pretty quickly and say, this is what I know, just tell me if something's wrong. And then get a little bit more of the features and then spend more time on education. So the main part should be education and talking about treatment options, whether it's lifestyle and talking about functional disorders and uh, alternative intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe bringing them back to talk more. I think that's yeah. what I need to do. Yeah. I don't have appointments. But. So um, in terms of just first line, the first things you would try at that initial visit, so let's say you have a child or an adolescent with signs that are pretty clearly suggestive of functional dyspepsia, where it's not just nausea, but mm-hmm. also some pain, bloating, discomfort. Um, you know, we talked about, we'll maybe do some evaluation, but what therapeutic things would you try first? So you have to feel them out. I think mm-hmm. if, if they really are moderately disabled and not going to school yeah. and that maybe they deserve an, uh, a trial of uh, a medication and, you know, unfortunately we don't have a lot. I think I would really talk about all the lifestyle mm-hmm. things we we discussed. But I do think that cipraheptadine yeah. works sometimes and I'm not trying to blow off the medications that's not working. So it's fairly right. safe. It's a migraine drug has talked about the many effects. I think that the tricyclic antidepressants can be another option. Mm-hmm. So you tease out the features. So there's more anxiety with this right. patient, then maybe that's a tricyclic antidepressant should be used. Um, there is one drug that people don't use as much, and that's Remeron or Mirtazapine. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be a wonder drug uh, for patients a little bit older, but we have 
six, seven years old, even on a smaller dose. Perfect patient is having poor sleep and some a lot of dyspeptic features or even gastric emptying delays. There's really no good data, but it has then anti-anxiety effects as well. So Remeron, Cipreptidine, and Tricyclics. Yeah. I started using the medication for nausea, vomiting, or pregnancy, Dicleagis, something that can be tried as well. I mean, I think that we don't have evidence, so why not try other things that are proven safe in pregnant women? So that's a B6 vitamin that's combined with an antihistamine, doxylamine, and um, you take that at night and it helps with sleep and morning nausea. And because it's so safe and FDA approved for pregnant women, and I think that when you have that discussion with the right. family, that's, that's an easy trial as needed medication. Right. So those are some tips. Do you use STW5 or Ibero mm-hmm. gas? Yeah, I just thought about that as well. I do, but it makes me a little concerned that there's been a case report of a liver failure. Mm-hmm. So I was using it all the time, and that patient probably had a metabolic defect and was overdosing yeah. it. But you kind of have to mention that. like, And then when you mention that, people don't want to use it, right? right? right. So I, I do think that works sometimes for nausea. And then peppermint yeah. capsules can help dyspepsia patients. But but those are very nice first steps, like I bear guess perhaps saying yeah. that just don't overuse it. Peppermint, maybe the diclegis. Yeah. And then if you're not better in a couple of weeks, call us and we'll prescribe cipreptidine yeah. or bring them back. Yeah. So I think those are good tips and maybe tend to just start like a PPI, but yeah, yeah, right. comparing these these things with a PPI, this is probably going to be more effective than a PPI. Yeah. Sure. So I want to talk to you about your success in your career and how you've been able to balance living, having, you know, an NIH funded research with your children as a professional tennis player at some point. Can you give some advice to people like me and other people who are listening who might be considering like really diving headfirst into an academic career and focusing a lot on research and kind of some of the tips that you have for balancing everything? Yeah, it's, uh, I need advice myself, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I think we all struggle. And I think your kids keep you sane. Sometimes you have the, the forced breaks in the park, right? And then and you have to teach yourself to put away your phones and your computers and just spend those quality times with your kids. But that come back comes back to the work time. I I set certain goals every day, but I remember a time where I didn't have children. And like, eh, I'll finish that at home later. Now, that time doesn't exist. So... I set my goals and I said, this hour, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, literally hour by hour. And uh, but now when we have Epic and my chart and all this stuff, I think you need to really have isolated times when you deal with that. And I still struggle to do that. But I say an hour in the morning, I'm closing my Epic and things can wait. I mean, there's rarely anything emergent. And then perhaps you do a little session of your Epic in the afternoon before you go home too. And you've dealt with a lot of things for that day. Uh, but I think it's really about time management when you're there and avoiding disruptions. And really, when you write papers and grants, you need absolute silence. You need to turn off your emails. Uh, it was part of a scholars program, research scholars programs. So there's a theme there of, of really managing your time like that. Sorting your emails is apparently, and not sorting them and not dealing with them is a huge stressor yeah. uh, and a part of burnout. There's people who's writing books about this and how to how to decrease stress in your life with emails and phones and mm-hmm. turning the email notifications off, don't have Epic on your phone. Why would you have Epic on your phone? Um, oh, why do you have notifications <laughs> of every email you get from your work email? Peter from just your, looked down. From, yeah. your, from your Gmails. Why do we have notifications that we just got an email? Right. We, I mean, nothing it's can... junk anyway. But I, I was fascinated by the fact that the, the email sorting and, and putting things in folder and then a to-do folder, which maybe don't get dealt with, but at least you're sorting them, yeah. actually improves your 
your son's quality of life and your burnout, I, I think that should be done. But it's the goal setting and dealing with things when you're there uh, and hmm. trying to get your staff to not interrupt you, I think. So um, how many goals do you set in a day? Too many. <laughs> Because for me, like, I try to set... I fail. I try to set three goals in a day so that when I leave for the day, I feel pretty accomplished. Now, my to-do list is much longer than right. three. So you're smarter than me because I set too many and I fail. But now I'm starting to think that three is too little. <laughs> so, maybe not. Maybe I think, I'm not doing enough. So what's going to happen if you don't do your laundry list, right? So I had a discussion with, yeah. with a senior person here yesterday, and he said, I've, we have deadlines and things to do, and we stress about it every day. And in the end, you start realizing, this didn't, this wasn't worth it. Yeah. And in fact, I didn't do that. It didn't make a rat's different in the end. So uh, trying to understand that and that set less of goals yeah i think you're better than i am because i often fail my goals <laughs> um but uh i think to really get somewhere you have to really push yourself and um you do have to work some late hours if you're going to write grants and write, get grants i mean i i do think there's unfortunately at least in the beginning no way around that so because yeah. you do have to show that you can do it and for junior faculty to take that first step getting in some internal support, uh, a small grant to get started. I think as you're still dealing with clinical load, that's the hardest phase. Right. And you have to kind of move up above that and then prove that you can do it and just kind of fight through that phase. Uh, a lot of people give up and say, I might as well be a clinician. I, I'm not right. successful. And I think it comes with a little bit of luck, right? But I think what goes around comes around and the people who work hard will achieve things. It's yeah. as simple as that. Hmm. Yeah. If you try to cut the corner, achieve things. Yeah, there's no, there's no want easy to. way. You, no if you easy. want, you, want it, to. you have to work for it. But if you're talking about research and wanting to do that and get the protected time, protected time is not just right. hanging, hanging, you know, put your feet up on the and the couch. This is a hard. This is, the hard work continues, and in, right. in many ways, it becomes harder. But you get flexibility if that's what you want to do. You get to do what you want to do. the The toughest part is that you have to juggle both for some time, the clinician and research and. And we're stuck in that. And many of us are stuck. We burn out. And then we revert to just dealing with the clinician stuff because we, we yeah. either didn't make it. So um, I don't think there's great solutions right now with, with all the demanding computer work we have uh, with computerized systems. But I think uh, I just have to, you just have to time manage your time as best as you can. I yeah. love that advice. Cluster things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when you're at work, You're at work, mm -hmm. right? Like, and when you're focusing on writing a grant, that's your focus. Correct. Trying, trying to protect yourself from getting interrupted, and I think that's just amazing advice for all yeah, of us. It's practical. If practical. you can stay yeah. out of your office half a day a week or one day a week, you yeah. get amazing things done. So, yeah, uh, it's not that you're somewhere else slacking. Um, mm -hmm. In some example, I was on maternity leave, and um, I wasn't supposed to have to work, but I had stuff to do. The research studies continue. And I think I was more productive with a two or three hours of work during nap time than I am in a typical day yeah. with no disruptions, no pages. And that's why some countries like in Scandinavia, where I'm from, some countries are moving to six hour workdays. Mm -hmm. You get more rest, you are more productive, you take care of your life outside of that. And you don't do 100 things at the same time and drink, right. eat your lunch in your car and, and do all your daycare duties in your car and at work and, and it's overwhelming yeah. um, and how can we achieve this in america i, I don't <laughs> yeah. help me figure that out I but mean, it's uh we'll i start was, right here yeah. <laughs> spread this message oh man because i mean this effect. is a whole different 
this is a whole one, talk, but one yeah, hour but like, discussion. you know, we technology is progressing so fast. How come we're feeling more stressed out? You know, I feel like this should be, Healthy. but that's a whole different thing. Maybe you can that's make a, an app. a whole different thing. Um, <laughs> and then, but no, I think that's very helpful. I, I, you know, that's uh, like some, because we've asked a lot of, you know, so we've talked to now, I think, four NASPN presidents. And it's a little bit different to hear uh, the perspective from someone who's in it right now, you know, yeah. making it, being successful, who's younger in their career. And so, anyways, I think that was anyway, really helpful. Very helpful. Thank you again so much for being here with yeah, us today. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much for inviting me. And do you have any parting words? Uh, work hard, smile, <laughs> enjoy it. That was great. I had a really great time yeah. talking to Dr. Kovacic. I think. So. I think one thing I thought was really cool is, uh, so she is very accomplished, but still fairly early in her career. Like she's not like a former NASPM president. She's already done so many things. And for people like us who are in the earlier part of her careers, um, it's really something we can strive towards to be that accomplished, but also still have a family and try to really work on what we want our career to look like, both in terms of life and work. And I love that she brought her youngest child with her to a conference recently yeah. and just made it happen. And, you know, I think that's really great. Does she have more than one kid? She has like three. Oh, man. Yeah. She's better baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I agree. So I think sometimes um, for us, looking at NASPCAN presidents, it's hard to imagine ourselves you know, 30 years later in their position. But um, it's kind of cool to hear from people who have already done a lot and are still, you know, not too far away from us um, experience-wise. Um, I think it's also cool. One thing she didn't talk too much about is that she had done this amazing study a few years ago looking at auricular neurostimulation, um, ear stimulation, essentially, uh, for children with functional abdominal pain. I, and I know that she... Um, has had some success with using it for nausea as well. So maybe in a future episode, we can have her come back and talk about uh, neuromodulation of the GI tract, which is something I also have a personal interest in. Yeah, that'd be sweet. That would be sweet. Anyways. Moving on. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bowel Sounds and on Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. The three things are, so one, tell a person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcast to help others discover us. Mm -hmm. And number three, so on our Buzzcast page, that's like our main page, there's a link to support the show. By making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation, you can also get there through www.naspgan.org. That's N-A-S-P-G-H-A-N, since it's not, in case you didn't know how to spell, whatever. Moving on. <laughs> the, money, the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and the guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye.